put to the test. But it never comes in the form or at the point we would prefer, does it? Don't call it a comeback, but don't deny the fact that the Dow rallied back 20% from its bear market lows. Let the beat rock down to your toes. Give it up for value stocks. Their momentum really rocks, hitting 52-week highs around the clock. Tick-tock, the Fed may try to talk this rally down. Turn our smiles into frowns, playing us like we're clowns. Not this time around. New facts are on the ground. Sentiment shifting higher. Investors are inspired. Yet caution remains. These have been easy gains. No time for bubbles. No time for champagne. Profits will wane. Several rate hikes remain. We got to stay right, hold tight, keep our sights on success. F is for fundamentals on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. This episode of The Express is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. YCharts aims to help you achieve all of your investing goals packed into one simple solution. With YCharts, stay ahead of market movements with a personalized market dashboard, intraday pricing, and over a quarter million economic indicators. You'll always stay tapped into the market. For more information, start a free trial at YCharts.com or follow on Twitter at YCharts. We're big fans and heavy users of YCharts over here. You're going to see their charts in almost every one of our daily newsletters and in our articles. It's a great market visualization tool, and the terrific team over at YCharts is always super helpful and full of insights. To that end, we are bringing you a conversation I had the pleasure of hosting with Shannon Sakosha, the Chief Investment Officer for SVP Private Bank in partnership with YCharts later on in the show. Shannon and I ripped through a few of the most important charts in the world to understand the trends and sentiment moving markets right now and what to expect next year. That's coming up in a few minutes, but first... Let's get into it. It's lights out and away we go. U.S. equity markets added another week of gains last week, but it wasn't calm or orderly. A speech from Fed Chair Powell on Wednesday where he indicated that the pace of rate hikes may slow if inflation continues its downward trend, that sent stocks soaring. The Nasdaq jumped 4.4% on the day, one of the largest daily increases in history. Get this, two of the 10 largest moves for the Nasdaq composite over the past decade occurred this past November. That's why November is a bear market killer, and that's why it's rarely a good idea to sell in the midst of a bear market. These big daily rebounds happen in those environments. And speaking of rebounds, the Dow Industrials, they're not all industrials, of course, you know, has climbed completely out of bear market territory. It's up 20% since those late September lows, making that two-month percentage gain the largest since 1938. The S&P 500 is up nearly 14% over the past two months, and as our pal Ryan Dietrich points out, That's not the kind of move you see during bear markets. Smells more like the start of a new bull market because the past 13 times that has happened since 1950, the market was higher a year later, 12 times out of 13, and up 20.7% on average. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? We are, Maximus, but there's that good news in the economy kind of means not so good news for the stock market thing happening again. That stronger-than-expected November jobs report that showed 263,000 jobs added last month versus the 200,000 expected, it reminded investors that the Federal Reserve is not done hiking rates, not by a long shot. Wages increased another 0.6% last month, rising at an annual rate of 5.5%. 
The Fed is trying to cool that wage inflation down and help the labor market find some balance. It's way out of balance, as we learned last Wednesday with the JOLTS report for October. That showed that there were still 10.3 million job openings in October, or 1.7 jobs open for every available worker. The openings are in leisure and hospitality, healthcare, trucking, and the arts and entertainment and recreation sectors. On the other side of the economy, tech companies continue to lay off workers as they face slowing growth and higher borrowing costs. Yet the unemployment rate remains at 3.7%, even as the labor force participation rate remains lower than its 10-year average. Now, we know the jobs report is a rear-view mirror indicator, and the unemployment number comes from a household survey that is pretty imprecise. But still, the labor market is strong. Consumer spending is holding up despite inflation, and retail sales, especially holiday sales, weren't that bad. The Federal Reserve is looking at all of this, likely thinking that staying the course on interest rate hikes still makes a lot of sense. Right now, Fed fund futures are pricing in a greater than 78% likelihood that the Fed will raise interest rates a half a percent at its meeting next week. And that leads us straight into our three things for the week. Number one, even with these big recent market swings, volatility is actually cooling down a little bit. The VIX, or CBOE Volatility Index, which measures market expectations for volatility over the coming 30 days, that closed below 20 last week for the first time since August. Anything over 20 is kind of hot, and the average VIX reading this year has been around 26. The historical average is just under 20. While volatility is good for traders who make their money on wild swings in the market, long-term investors like it mellow, and the VIX looks like it's mellowing out. Number two, Wall Street's investment banks and money managers are out with their 2023 S&P 500 target ranges, and they're kind of all over the place, as they usually are. The most bullish of them all, Deutsche Bank, with a year-end price target of 4,500 for the S&P 500. That's followed by Wells Fargo, who sees a range between 4,300 and 4,500. 4,500 would imply a 9% gain from where the S&P 500 trades today at a little over 4,000. The most bearish of them all, that goes to Barclays, which thinks that 3,675 is about right, followed by Societe Generale at 3,800. The rest are clustered between 3,900 and 4,200. Nobody's shooting for the moon or predicting a market disaster next year, at least not yet. And that leads us to number three. How about you? How are you feeling? Well, according to our most recent survey of our daily newsletter readers, you are warming up to the recent market rally. While many of you are still playing it cautious, you're not as worried about recent market events, and a few of you are actually predicting some solid gains into 2023. Nearly one-fifth of respondents are expecting continued gains of at least 5% or more over the next six months. Still, 44% of respondents say they're still making safer investments, and 24% say they are putting money back into money market funds, the highest percentage all year. 20% say they're favoring CDs, those certificates of deposit, and 10%, well, they say they're making riskier investments. More than half of respondents expect a recession in 2023, and 84% say there's a 50-50 chance. 73% of respondents listed a recession as their top concern, followed by inflation, rising interest rates, and geopolitical conflicts. These have been the walls of worry surrounding investors all year, and they're likely going to carry over into 2023. Still, our readers love stocks, and it's no surprise that the U.S. equity market is where most of them anticipate the best returns over the next three years. Global stocks and U.S. Treasury bonds came in second and third. We also asked our readers if there was just one stock, just one stock that they could buy and hold for the next 10 years, and no surprise here either. It's Apple, followed by Microsoft, and then Amazon. Check out the full survey results, which we will link to in the show notes. And we are grateful, so grateful, to have some of the smartest readers on the planet. 
Let's get set up for the week ahead, and inflation remains in focus, especially towards the end of the week when we get the producer price index for November and a reading on consumer sentiment for December. Producer price increases have been decelerating the past couple of months, down to a 7.2% annual growth rate from 8% back in October. This week could bring more signs that the inflation cooling trend is real. Consumer sentiment, for its part, is off of those June lows, but still hovering near record low territory. We may feel bad about inflation, but we keep on spending according to holiday shopping figures. The European Union is set to ban all imports of Russian seaborne crude oil as of Monday, while the U.S. and other members of the G7 will impose a price cap on the oil Russia sells to countries around the world. The Kremlin has previously warned that any attempt to impose a price cap on Russian oil will cause more harm than good. Yet oil prices have fallen to below $90 a barrel for more than $120 a barrel in early June. Crude oil is actually trading lower today than it was before Russia invaded Ukraine in February of last year. Most of that is due to falling crude demand in China and mounting fears of a recession. Over the weekend, OPEC and its allies, known as OPEC Plus, decided to keep current production cuts of 2 million barrels per day, or roughly 2% of daily global output. The central banks of both Australia and Canada are set to raise interest rates again when they meet this week. Members of the Federal Open Market Committee here in the United States won't be speaking at all for a change. They'll be in a quiet period ahead of their meeting on interest rates December 13th and 14th. And there's just a few earnings reports coming in on the late cycle from companies including AutoZone, Costco, and Lululemon, to name a few. But it's next quarter and next year that are going to start the warning signs around here. According to FactSet, during the months of October and November, analysts lowered EPS estimates for S&P 500 companies for the fourth quarter by 5.6%. That's almost triple the average during the first two months of a quarter. Profits are under pressure, no doubt about it, and that makes it even more essential to focus on the fundamentals. We're going to focus on those fundamentals by bringing you a piece of my conversation with Shannon Sakosha that we held with YCharts last week. The focus of that conversation, helping investors reset their expectations and their portfolios as the end of the year approaches so we can be ready for 2023. Shannon is another one of those super smart investing strategists who brings common sense, market history, and evidence-based investing to her practice. And I learn something from her every time I read her commentary or see her on the Business TV Networks. Shannon and I ripped through some charts in our chat, some Y charts to be sure, and we're going to link to those and add them to the transcript of this conversation, which you will find on investopedia.com slash the express podcast. Set the table on where we are. And of course, this is the big, the big tug of war, Shannon, going on right now. The Fed funds rate versus inflation. Fed's going to keep raising rates until inflation comes down meaningfully. We heard Chair Powell say it again yesterday. We should expect to hear it again next week. But this is the big tug of war. Give us what you see when we look at these two things pulling against each other. Yeah, the drumbeat of inflation just will will not die. And I think coming into 2022, we all anticipated this inflation, right? I think we, we knew that the Fed, their idea about this being transitory only was debunked pretty soundly in 2021. And now coming into 2022, we expected this to be, you know, really the biggest challenge. I think a lot of the emphasis was on the higher cost of capital, you know, the pressure to earnings, the pressure to margin with these higher costs. But I think what has been a bigger challenge is that the credibility of the Fed has come into question with that transitory call, but also with the pace that they've had to execute these Fed rate hikes at. I mean, if you look at this chart and you just think about 
what we've seen historically in the last Fed hiking cycles, the pace, the velocity of the action that they've had to take is really what is is phenomenal and and quote unquote unprecedented. We've used that term a lot in the last decade or so, and it always seems like everything is without precedent (laughs) these days. But I mean, I think the other thing to think about here is that you know, inflation has two sides to it. And I think one of the things that we need to just keep in mind is that, you know, in as much as we have shown that all of the inflation that we've experienced this year is is truly not necessarily transitory, portions of it are. And I think that's going to set the stage for a lot of the conversation over the next 12 months or so, and why the Fed is so committed to telling us they're committed, because people are starting to see that some parts of these inflation numbers do feel a little bit transitory. And they want to make sure that all of us as investors are not are keeping our eye on the ball and really firmly believing that they're going to get to those yields that they've talked about. Yeah, great call. And then mind the gap here at the edge of the chart here, you see this gap between where Fed funds rate are today and where inflation is today, 7.7%-ish. We got a new reading on PCE this morning, but the Fed wants inflation closer to 2%. And we're a far away from that and the terminal rate everyone's talking about in terms of where the Fed might finish raising interest rates is maybe north of 5%, closer to 6%. Big gap there, right, Jen? Huge gap. I mean, and you think about what the terminal rate historically has, you, you know, you think about terminal rate, what does that mean? That's growth. That's G, expected GDP growth. I mean, they inflation should be similar to GDP growth, and that's where the Fed wants to keep rates. And that's where that terminal number comes in. So you're sort of thinking to yourself, well, that implies that the Fed would be looking for the economy to be growing at that pace, but that's not really what we're seeing either. This is the other part of the problem, which is money supply versus inflation. Government was handing out trillions of dollars during the pandemic for good reasons, but kept doing that, swelling the balance sheet. The Fed was a buyer, right, of mortgage-backed securities and and government securities. Now it's a seller and it's trying to wind down its balance sheet while it's trying to wind down inflation, while it's raising rates. That's a lot of push-pull going on right there. What are you looking at? The lever here is is clearly trying to to roll off some of this balance sheet. And I think it's, and, and you remember this, Caleb, I'm sure we were coming out of the financial crisis. And because of what at the time was this, you know, unprecedented quantitative easing, there was this expectation that we were going to see runaway inflation. You know, how many of us were being asked by clients about gold and, you know, other inflation hedges during that period? And we really didn't see it because we didn't have this other side, this fiscal stimulus side, this you know significant influx. And some would say that slowed the economic recovery in 2010, 2011. But it also was the big difference between what you see here on this graph in 2010, 2011, 2012, and what we've experienced in the last two years. The problem with this, too, is that it's sort of counter. The Fed knows it needs to bring the balance sheet down because they know the debt service burden is significant on the U.S. government. But it also creates probably a ceiling on how high they can really go on rates. And so if inflation doesn't start to come down, they are going to start to bump up against what else can they do. And I think, unfortunately, what could happen if we start to see a lot of economic weakness they could kind of take their foot off the gas as it relates to bringing this balance sheet down. And that's a problem. I mean, you look at the questions around Japan, right? Where they've got a demographic problem, they have a debt problem. And I would say that the U.S. is sort of tiptoeing into that territory. We're getting there. We're getting close. So, 
<laughs> so that's so that's what you should be worried. I mean, this is, you know, the government will pay its bills. And I think that as long as we get uh, Washington to play ball with the debt ceiling, we'll be able to do that. But I do think that this is going to be a longer term concern, especially with some of the things that do have precedent when you have a high debt load and you have less than supportive demographics. We're talking about the Fed raising rates and trying to bring down inflation. We're talking about demand destruction. And that is exactly what we have seen in the housing market since the beginning of this year, month after month lower existing housing sales, lower building permits, every metric you look at basically in housing, except for prices, which have crack, been cracking lately, you're getting this drumbeat. You like to look inside the housing market at these metrics. What do you see in here? Well, I think we talk a lot about the lag, right? And, and if you listen to, to Powell's comments and you listen to and you read the minutes from the last Fed meeting, uh, everybody's waiting for the Fed to acknowledge that there's a lag. And there certainly is. But this is the really where we've seen it um, first and foremost is in the housing market. You know, mar- mortgage rates react very quickly and buyer demand reacts very quickly. The refinancing is essentially off the table, which for a long time, I mean, there was a lot of activity from a mortgage perspective going on in refinancing, but it also created a platform for affordability. You know, there was a foundation in the housing market that even though prices were moving higher, rates were so low that there was this affordability that doesn't exist today. And so my question that I get often is, okay, we are starting to see some pressure in pricing, which honestly, given a lot of the pull forward that we saw in 2020 and 2021 in terms of home buyers, that was not likely to continue at the same pace. But the other thing to look at is look at how much supply, look at this purple line. And people are asking me, are we going to have similar housing busts to what we experienced going into the GFC? Absolutely not, because the supply is not there. We have been under supplying the housing market ever since 2009 in the United States, from a sing- especially from a single family perspective. And so the supply is not there. There will be kind of this structural ebb and flow over the course of the next year to year and a half as buyers adjust their expectations for mortgage rates, as that affordability is adjusted based on these higher interest rates, but they'll re-anchor to that. And housing likely does persist as a catalyst for some growth, not the amount of growth that we experienced in the last couple of years, but as a positive to GDP five, 10 years out, because we still have a demographic tailwind. 43% of millennials own a house, 65% of the general population owns a house, and that household formation comes later. So the housing market to us isn't quite dead yet, but we need to rectify these prices need to come down a little bit more to increase affordability. And we also need to see some supply come back into the market. That probably happens over the next year and a half or so. Let's take a deeper dive into some sectors with the next slide, looking at a lot of the sectors that have had some strength this year, and you can't deny the strength of energy. What a year for energy stocks, especially the oil and energy sector, some of the top performing stocks, obviously ExxonMobil, Occidental, and a lot of these. Do you think we are in a secular bull market for commodities, especially the fossil fuel complex? Well, I think it's relative to where we've been historically. You know, I think that, you know, we go back to zero spot or sub-zero spot oil in uh, in the depths of the pandemic, right? I think that the interesting thing about the energy complex is that there's been so much emphasis on valuations in this last year, especially the re-rating of longer duration growth valuations, you know, at, at, at much higher multiples than the market. Energy is the opposite of that, right? You know, there's a lot of really cheap energy stocks out there. And, you know, with oil prices probably a bit range bound here just because not only do we have, I would say we're seeing modest increases in demand, but that ebbs and flows. 
It's really a supply problem. There's an undersupply, particularly of oil, in the next couple of years. And so with that undersupply and the fact that OPEC Plus is continuing to potentially cut production, you just start to think of there's probably a floor there. I would say on the on the commodity side more broadly, I think that you could look at something like the reshoring of manufacturing here in the United States and, and global infrastructure build as being a, potentially a, a support for commodity prices. But I think energy, I think energy stocks have continued to benefit benefit just because of those valuations and the margin that they're able to throw off. And they have been an outlier when compared with other sectors who've really been hurt by higher costs. We can see a lot of those right here. But then let's look at some of the quote unquote recession proof, or at least the defensive type sectors. You got to look at consumer staples, basically flat for the year where we've seen the S&P 500 down 15%, as far down as 27%. Consumer staples, you would expect this type of behavior. What do you expect for 2023, given the behavior so far? This has been sort of textbook performance in consumer staples. You know, you're concerned, you're looking for defensive places to hide out. The, the interesting thing about consumer staples as a whole is that, that from they're actually starting to seem somewhat expensive. Um, and if you think about the longer term, higher cost profile that we're anticipating, you know, consumer staples, you know, those are those are fairly lean margins across the board. I mean, as a generalization, right? So I would say we're probably not as excited or optimistic about consumer staples performing really well in the first half of next year. If you do get a significant slowdown or contraction in economic activity, then I think you probably get some flooding back into this sector later next year. But I think we've, we've pulled forward some of the performance here in consumer staples. And those some of those stocks look a little expensive for, for low margin businesses. Yeah. Talk about textbook. Look at consumer discretionary with concerns about a recession, one of the worst performing sectors when we look at just the ETF performance, down 31, 31.5% so far this year. And then there's tech, which high interest rates, rising rate environments, not a friend to growth stocks, especially the tech stocks that borrow a lot of money and need a lot of that cheap money for their expansion. Somewhat of a recovery here, but we're not going back to the old days, are we? No, and I think that most importantly, when you think about technology, you want to make sure that you understand where you're getting that exposure. And I think the challenge right now is that, you know, in as much as the S&P 500 performance was helped, you know, coming into, you know, the pre-pandemic world and then through the pandemic by the the large concentration technology stocks, obviously that that market-weighted index has been hurt by that. I think that within technology, there's still going to need be the need for disruption and innovation. That's a that's a longer-term trend because in a higher cost environment environment, in a hiring constrained environment, in, in an environment where companies are trying to find any way possible to be able to increase margins. Uh, technology does that, right? That's why we've been in a, in a deflationary environment for 20 years is because it's been a combination of globalization and technology. So if you think about that, tech stocks aren't dead, but I think you really have to think about profitability. And you have to think about prioritization. Cheap money leads to poor capital allocation. And I think what you're seeing now is a right sizing in a lot of these big tech businesses um, in terms of what they're spending money on. And I actually think that it ends up creating stronger businesses three or four years from now, but it's going to be a little bit painful in the interim. We hear a lot of people say, and I'm sure you get this all the time, it's a stock picker's market. It's not necessarily a, a throw a dart anywhere you want type of market. What's your take on that? Stock picking, index investing, ETFs, I guess it depends on who you're doing it for, but what's your overall vibe on whether it's a, a picker's market or not? 
So I think that there are opportunities, um, particularly in an environment where you have a lot of management teams that are facing challenges that they haven't faced before. They're chasing, you know, facing higher costs and wages. They're facing hiring issues. They're facing, you know, maybe a little less constructive capital market environment. And so th- I think that's where in 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 execution, because we've actually seen, you know, quality underperform this year, and that's been somewhat surprising. But that probably doesn't persist in a more in recessionary environment. So. You think about quality management teams, you think about capital allocation, you keep up, think about shareholder return, not just, you know, capital appreciation on the stock, but what's the return to the shareholder? I do think that's why dividends become more important in this next environment. And so I would say there are opportunities for stock picking, but I wouldn't be afraid to really, again, go back to sort of that thematic assessment of your portfolio. And if we're going back to a probably slower growth environment, akin to what we were in 2019, but with higher costs, um, you know, where are the subsectors and 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 industries that could potentially benefit from that? And so you can do that via ETFs fairly easily. I mean, there's a number of different vehicles that you can utilize to be able to get that type of exposure without having to go so deep into those individual countries and or companies. And so that's an important aspect. A balance between you know micro and macro, I think, probably makes sense as we move forward in the next two to three years. Dollar versus the stock market, dollar versus any risk asset has been the story really in 2022. Dollars come off a little bit lately, and and especially as the Fed is sort of talking a little bit more dovishly here. But as the dollar goes, so conversely do a lot of these risk assets, right? Especially those that are larger, right? So you think about, you know, cap here and, you know, it's not... A hundred percent. It's a it's a generalization, but it's pretty accurate. The larger company you are, the more that you likely have um, revenues that are that are generated outside of the United States, and so you have to think about the translation of those revenues. Um, you also have to think about it in terms of, you know, what is the what is the, the strength of that dollar, and does and and what's that tied to, and why is has it been strong, and is it really just interest rates that are driving that? Or is there a true risk off sentiment? And so that's why they tend to move move in this fashion. And I think right now the challenge is, is that the Fed is likely to start to get closer to that pause. And we're going to see interest rates moving higher in other parts of the world, um, especially in Europe and the UK, given what they're facing from an inflation perspective. And so maybe the shine comes off the dollar just a touch going into next year, but we're still in a, in a stronger dollar scenario. That currency translation is still going to be an issue, particularly for mega cap stocks that have significant external international exposure. And so this dynamic is likely to persist for a little while because we're 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 at least not expecting dollar significant dollar weakening next year, maybe just some stabilization. What is nobody talking about for 2023 that you think is really important? What is being missed here? Or what's not getting enough attention from an investor or an advisor perspective as we think about next year? So I talked a little bit about China already, and I, I, I do continue to think about the uncertainty of policy and how much not only the uncertainty of policy is related to China kind of domestic policy, but we've spent the last five or six years talking a lot about our relationship with China, China foreign policy. How does China feel like it should fit within the global economy? I think we should be paying more attention to that. I think that that is something that could crop up again as a very reasonable either concern or catalyst for 2023. The other thing that I would caution is that I think there is a continued expectation that the allocation to equities that we experienced in portfolios or that we saw in portfolios in 2019, 2020, 2021 
that that is going to to reemerge and so that there always will be, you know, constant flow into the equity market. And I would say that there's a lot of investors that we're talking to today that I wouldn't have pinned as being particularly conservative that with yields where they are today, which are not astounding numbers from a historical perspective, but they're astounding to them in with the backdrop of our previous environment. They're really comfortable clipping that coupon on a yeah. very four to five percent sounds great. Yeah, and so and and the cost of their debt is below that, Caleb. There's a delta there that I think that people and so I, I would see portfolios maybe not going completely conservative, but I do see people wanting to keep more of that money in in conservative assets, clipping a coupon on that, and I think it's going to take a little bit longer before there's a, a significant amount of push and enthusiasm into the equity markets. I think there's also I think people forget that you know in an environment where you are seeing inflation at even at five or six percent that you want to make sure that you're keeping up from a principal perspective with that inflation and I think people have forgotten that that's a, a drawback of the bond market if you will so I that's what I would watch for next year I think there's always an assumption that as flows come out of the equity market they're gonna eventually all go back into the equity market because that's what you've experienced for the last decade I think we could see some slippage there It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Richie Royce on Instagram, and Richie suggests the wash sale rule this week. We love that term, especially as we get close to the end of the year, and some of us may be considering selling some of the losers in our portfolio. It's perfectly okay to do that, of course, but it's not okay to buy those same securities back within 30 days and claim the loss deduction on our taxes. That's because the wash sale rule, according to my favorite website, is an internal revenue service IRS regulation that prevents a taxpayer from taking a tax deduction for a loss on a security sold in a wash sale. The rule defines a wash sale as one that occurs when an individual sells or trades a security at a loss and within 30 days before or after the sale buys the same or a substantially identical stock or security or acquires a contract or option to do so. A wash sale also results if an individual sells a security and the individual spouse or a company controlled by the individual buys a substantially equivalent security during the 61-day waiting period. The point of the wash sale rule, known in the tax code as Section 1031, is to prevent investors from creating an investment loss for the benefit of a tax deduction while essentially maintaining their position in the security. The wash sale rule is one of our oldest security laws. It's been around since the 1920s, but it was broadened by the IRS in the early 1990s. Great suggestion, Richie. We're going to be sending you a pair of Investopedia's finest socks for picking this week's Term of the Week winner. We're going to let Jay-Z take us out this week. It's no secret that I'm a huge fan of the Jigga Man, both as an artist and as an entrepreneur. I've had the opportunity to meet him a few times, and despite his superstar power, he's about as genuine a person as you'll ever meet. Sean Carter, aka Jay-Z, celebrated his 53rd birthday on December 4th, So in honor of him, I dug up an interview I helped produce with CNN's Poppy Harlow 12 years ago. Here's Jay-Z on his advice to people trying to make it just like he did. What's your advice to other people coming up who are trying to make it and trying to become moguls in and of their own right? What's your advice to them? Uh, My advice is to do things that are true to you. You know, uh, you know. Most things that I'm involved with are extension of being creative. You know, Rockaway is a clothing company. You know, it's part of who you are. And hip-hop is your attitude and what you're trying to express, how you dress. Um, You know, I love sports growing up. I grew up in a a household where sports was on 24-7. So these are all things that are, you know, are comfortable for me. You know, these are things that I like. 
So I would just say get involved in things that you love and also have, you know, have a standard for yourself and have some sort of integrity and try to, you know, find some sort of truth in what you're doing. He has some serious standards because he's not a businessman. He's a business man. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to YCharts for their sponsorship and their partnership. If you want to visualize the markets, check out YCharts. We use them all the time. For more information, start a free trial at YCharts.com or follow them on Twitter at YCharts. And special thanks to Shannon Sakasha for sharing her insights. Again, we will have all the charts we mentioned and all the reports we cited on this episode's transcript, which you can find at Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.